Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. We are in a series entitled Exploring Prophetic Terms, Prophetic Terms, and we are looking at seven sets of terms that deal with prophecy. And we are looking at these terms, we're contrasting them uh, as opposed to what a lot of people do, they compare them thinking that they're one and the same, and I believe that leads you to a, a, a difficulty in uh, the efforts you put into trying to understand the prophetic events, particularly the events that are yet to happen. And of course, those are the events we're going to be um, discussing and describing in a little detail. We're not going to go into each one in a very deep way. That's for later on when we take uh, several of those, and, and I'll, I'll be guided to an extent by what you would prefer that we look at in detail after we go over them. These are the 30 prophetic events uh, that are, my study of the Bible shows me that will take place between now, even though there's no event happening right now, but between now and eternity, which is uh, the end of those 30 events, as described at the end of the book of Revelation, and uh, it's a period of time when there is no sin anymore. So we're back to a Garden of Eden-type environment before the fall. So there are 30 events, and as I've mentioned several times, I, as I was preparing the notes for that 30-event uh, overview, I noticed there were a number of places where prophetic terms were used that if you did not understand them, you would, you would potentially misunderstand, mishandle them, and misapply them and would come out with a um, uh, false or faulty uh, understanding of the, the, the flow of the scriptural prophecies that the Lord would have us uh, understand them. And examples are we've already covered the Son of God versus the Son of Man. And, of course, the Son of God is used when he's talking to believers, and the Son of Man is when he's talking to unbelievers because he's the one that's going to come back and judge and all judgment has been given to the Son of Man. And, of course, that's Jesus. Then we're looking at, uh, we're finishing up here with uh, the contrast, the difference between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. And you might read those and think they're one and the same, but they are dramatically different. The day of Christ only applies to the rapture. The day of Christ only applies to believers. It's a specific group of people at a very specific point in the time, in the future, it's unknown to us. It's a signless event. In fact, it's, I believe, the next event on the prophetic calendar. Then you have the day of the Lord, which uh, encompasses a broad period of time beginning with the middle of the tribulation that's yet to come, that seven-year period of time when the church is taken out of the way and the uh, tribulation begins. And then at the midpoint, it gets very rough because that's when it gets very difficult Um for Israel, 
And it goes from then all the way through the millennial kingdom to the great white throne judgment, according to Peter. But the probably one of the key events, if you will, of the day of the Lord is the second coming of Christ and the judgment of the world. And therefore, it's going to be a very dark, gloomy, cloudy, um, calamitous time, as we've said before. And we saw that uh, scripture after scripture in the Old Testament. And now we're in the New Testament. And we only find a handful of scriptures in the New Testament about the day of the Lord because it doesn't have anything to do with the church. And the New Testament is is a lot to do with the church. Not all of it, but a lot to do with the church. So we're seeing a differentiation that Paul actually makes between the church and the rapture and the rest of the world and the second coming and the judgments uh, with the day of the Lord. And we did that by going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we were um, starting out in verse 2 where it specifically uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. For you yourselves, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So we know that uh, going through that verse when he says, you know full well, and the reason he can say that is because he has taught the brethren, the church in Thessalonica, all about the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ that encompasses the tribulation. They know the details of that. In fact, he goes as far as to boldly state, you know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief. And because of the term like a thief in the night and how it is misused um, by a number of Bible teachers that apply it to the church and the rapture of the church, that we went into John chapter 10 and showed how Jesus described the thief and how the thief comes to destroy and to rob and to steal. And that when, when Jesus refers to himself as coming like a thief, you in context, when you study the scripture, in context, he's talking to Israel during the tribulation period. Never does Jesus use the term a thief to describe himself relative to the church. He always refers to himself as the good shepherd, the husband, um, the head, if you will, the chief cornerstone, however you want to put it, but he never refers to himself as a thief relative to the church. So when he comes, when he comes for the church, it's going to be as the good shepherd to take that particular flock home with him to heaven. And then he's going to come back to the earth at least seven years later, because we don't know when the rapture is going to take place relative to the tribulation but we know the tribulation is seven years long, that at the end of the seven-year tribulation, he will come back, and he will come back as a thief because the world's not going to be looking for him. And and they use the example of just as it was in the days of Noah. The world wasn't looking for a flood, and it surprised them at the last moment when the rain started to come and and, and didn't stop. They started banging on the doors of the ark as as it floated away, if you will. So just as it was in the days of Noah, he will come like a thief and they will not know it until it's too late. So that's why we spent time kind of going off on a tangent there to look at the term thief in the night. 
But then we went on to uh, verse 3, and I mentioned in our last program how that was so full of prophetic uh, taglines, if you will, to help us date when is being talked about here. Of course, we know it's talking about the day of the Lord, but this gives us some more um, meat around the subject to, uh, to bring more confidence to our understanding. And it says, while they, and of course we made the point um, before that the pronouns, following the pronouns is very important here. Because in verses 1 and 2, it's talking about you, brethren, and now it's shifting to they. So it's obviously the focus has been moved off the church to another group of people. And verse 3 says, while they are saying peace and safety, and we want to spend some time on peace and safety because that only happens during the tribulation, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. Understanding labor pains and when these labor pains take place is also important. And again, I'll show you from the scripture that the labor pains happen during the first part of the tribulation. When they're saying peace and safety, the labor pains come, and it says, and they, these people that are being referred to, these people who are clearly separate from the church, it says they will not escape. So that's a easy one that they will not escape. I want to go to that to show you that he's not talking about the church. So staying in First Thessalonians, this letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians all about the rapture of the church and all about the tribulation and the second coming of Christ, let's go back to verse uh, to chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And in 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 1, he is um, giving accolades to the believers who are putting up with the the Roman uh, heavy oppression, the persecution that's coming from the Romans, and they're doing such a wonderful job of putting up with this and not losing their sight of God, not losing their faith in Jesus, that the word has gotten around outside of Thessalonica. So he says in um, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, For they themselves, these other people, report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. Uh, Paul talking to the uh, other people, talking about the reception we had with you when we came to Thessalonica, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Verse 10, and while you're serving, you turn to God and are serving this true God, you are also wait, it says here, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us, rescues us from the wrath to come. And in the Hebrew, when you look at that, it means to deliver out of. It doesn't mean to put over in a corner and protect, you know, put a protective cover over him while there's wrath taking place on the earth, it means to take them out, get them out. So it's a rescue, and it's a rescue from the wrath to come. And that wrath is what we were uh, reading over in 1 Thessalonians verse uh, chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So I wanted to make the point clear 
going back now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that that last little phrase in verse 3, and they will not escape. Obviously, it says over here, we will be rescued in, in verse 10 of chapter 1, but they will not escape. So another clear point that the church is taken out of the way when this um, judgment comes, when Jesus comes back at his uh, a second coming. So let's go back up here, uh, as we said we would, in verse 3, and unpack this a little bit more. Because people can say, well, they're, they're saying peace and safety today. Well, I suppose to an extent you could say that, but is that what's being referred to here? And let's, let me show you some scriptures from the Old Testament that I think will clarify this and show you that this is talking about the tribulation period. It's not talking about today. And if it's talking about the tribulation period, you know it's not talking about the church. So it says, while they were saying peace and safety, why would anybody be saying peace and safety, particularly during the tribulation? And that's one of the rationales that people will use when they say this is applying to now. It can't be during the tribulation because the tribulation is going to be nothing but chaos, death and destruction and despair. Well, Let's go to Daniel. Let's go back to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament book of Daniel. And we've been in Daniel a lot, so hopefully if you've been with us um, for a while in this teaching ministry, you've figured out where uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah are. And we want to go to Daniel chapter 9. We've spent a lot of time here because it's one of the the most well-known, detailed prophecies of the end times. Uh, not only the end times, but uh, showing us that the people could have known exactly when Jesus came to Jerusalem to be crucified during his first advent. The, the, the dates were given, if you will, if you knew how to use the Bible through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Between Daniel chapter 9 and Nehemiah chapter 2, you could get the day that Jesus came to Jerusalem. And of course, this was prophesied six centuries before Jesus came in the book of Daniel. But uh, as we went to uh, Luke chapter 19 in a, in a prior program, we showed that Jesus even referred back. He said, you could have known the day that I came if you had simply studied the scriptures, but they were blinded to that. But to our point here about uh, peace and safety and why uh, a people group or anybody during the horrible tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, could ever proclaim peace and safety. And it says in Daniel chapter 9, uh, the last verse of chapter 9, it says, and he, and of course that he is a reference back up to uh, verse 26 about the prince who is to come, and that's the antichrist, lowercase p, because the uppercase p is used earlier to describe Jesus there in the same passage. And he, the antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many. Now, who's this whole passage about? Verse 24 says, these 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, Daniel, for Israel. So this covenant between the Antichrist uh, and the many is with Israel for one week. So this covenant, this peace covenant, if you will, is made between the Antichrist and Israel for the seven-year tribulation period. So basically, the Antichrist is saying, as the um, 
ruler of the world is what he ends up being, the Antichrist, I will protect you, Israel, during this covenant. I will protect you during this covenant. But look what happens. And it starts with but. For uh, a covenant with many for a week, but in the middle of the week, at the midpoint, after three and a half years, this is the day of the Lord we're talking about here, starting. But in the middle of the week, he, the Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So what does that tell you? The Antichrist, as part of this covenant of peace with Israel, has allowed Israel to build the third temple. This would be the third temple they build. It's not the final temple. That's the temple that Jesus will reign from in the millennial kingdom. That's the fourth temple. But this third temple is being built in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount in unbelief because they do not recognize Jesus. It says, in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And we read elsewhere that this is when the Antichrist goes into the temple that the Jews have built on the Temple Mount and declares himself God. So, for the first half of the tribulation, Israel is protected from the chaos that's happening in the world. Remember we've said elsewhere, half of the world's population that's left on the earth after the rapture dies in the first half. But Israel is protected from this. So when we go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, when it says, they are saying peace and safety, he's talking about Israel. Remember, Israel is the focus of the tribulation according to God's plan. They will be saying peace and safety. And then it says, but destruction will come upon them as birth pangs, birth pangs of a woman. So now I want us, and actually we're going to, um, this is a good place to stop today and we'll pick up tomorrow. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 24. So we're leaving um, we're leaving Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, and we're going to look at verse 8, which is describing, um, I think, in context there, and I say I, I, I understand this is all describing the first half of the tribulation, and he talks about birth pangs. So we'll go there in our next teaching program, but now we're going to shift over to our Q&A part of the program, and we're going to pick up on a question that was asked, uh, does the fact that Israel is the wife of God have any impact on end-time prophecy? And we made the point uh, in our last program to continue on to show that um, God wedded himself to Israel at Mount Sinai, and we showed the betrothal, the, the exchange of the I wills, which you find in a wedding, you found the exchange of the I wills, God saying, here's what you will do, and then if you do this, I will, and that's in Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6, principally verse 6, and then Israel comes back and says, yes, we will, or I will, uh, agree to everything that you said in the marriage covenant there, and that was in Exodus 19, verse 8. So you have Israel being betrothed and then wedded to God there in Exodus 19. And that's where we um, left off 
in our last program, and I'd said that we were going to look at some other Old Testament scriptures to show you where God actually refers to himself as the husband of Israel. So let's go to the book of Jeremiah. Let's go to the book of Jeremiah, and I want to um, go through three scriptures here with you to kind of show you this and to set the set the stage for an understanding here because it's been a very uh, tumultuous, rocky uh, marriage, if you will. And I think anyone that has uh, studied anything in the Bible and the Old Testament particularly knows that Israel has been an obstinate, uh, stone-like, foreheaded, uh, hard-to-get-along-with, disobedient wife, if you will, (laughs) I'm just trying to think of some terms. It's just it's difficult to, to describe this relationship um, that actually has evolved over time between Israel and her husband, God the Father. But the key thing to remember through all of this is that God the Father is a covenant-keeping God, and regardless of how many times Israel would break those covenant vows with God, God never has, never will break his covenant vows with Israel. And that, of course, results in the wonderful millennial kingdom yet to come. So if we go to Jeremiah chapter 3, and this is where Jeremiah is, as a prophet of God, speaking the words of God, really getting after Israel for their disobedience, for their, uh, they're referred to as harlots and adulteresses. And of course, we're talking about spiritual. Yes, there was physical, but it's principally spiritual harlotry, spiritual adultery, to the point where he refers to the ten northern tribes as faithless Israel, and then he talks about Judah as unfaithful. So he's really getting after, uh, the husband, if you will, is really getting after Israel here. And then you go down, I want you to go to Jeremiah 3, verse 14. Jeremiah 3, verse 14, and it says, Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So this is actually a a great prophecy right here of how he is going to regather Israel for the millennial kingdom that has yet to come. I will pick you up one from a city and two from a family and bring you to Zion. And of course, Zion is referring to the area of the Temple Mount there in the city of Jerusalem. But specifically to the point I want to make here is, he says in the second line there, referring to them, uh, the faithless, he says, for I am a master to you. So yes, he has wedded himself to Israel but Israel has been disobedient. So he's actually referring to himself not as the purely as the husband, but as the unfortunate but necessary um, aspect of the husband as being the master. In other words, uh, requiring Israel, telling Israel, here's what you have to do or you will be punished. So he's looking at it as a master, but I want to—I want you to focus on the word master, because now I want you to go to the minor prophet book of Hosea, or Hosea, however you've heard it, 
but it's basically if you get into, um, you've got uh, Jeremiah, then his little book of Lamentations, then Ezekiel, then Daniel, and then you get into Hosea. And I want you to go to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, and I want you to look at verse 16. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. Now this is... um, about the time, actually, this is a little bit before the time of Hosea wrote, oh, a hundred years or so before Jeremiah, but he's prophesying the future. He's prophesying the future, and that's the key thing to understand here as we read Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. And he says in verse 16, it will come about in that day, looking forward now, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi is the word I find here in my Bible, in the New American Standard Bible. But it's translated, you will call me my husband. And in verse, then the next line in verse 16, and will no longer call me Baeli, which is translated, my master. So you remember back in Jeremiah 13, God the Father was really getting after his wife for her adulterous, um, sinful ways. And he was saying, I'm, I'm having to be a master to you. But there's going to be a point in time when you will be counted as righteous, that righteous remnant of Israel. And I will go back to referring, uh, go back to my full husband relationship and not have to be the uh, demanding master aspect of husband, but a loving husband to you, that you will call me husband and will no longer call me master. And the last place I want us to go here as we finish up this look at uh, Israel as the wife of God is Isaiah 54. So we were back in Jeremiah, so we keep going to the left. Hosea back through Jeremiah to Isaiah and go to Isaiah 54. And in Isaiah 54, if we'd go to verse 5, it says, um, For your husband, referring to Israel, your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. So the God of all the earth, in that fourth line, is, according to the first line of verse 5, your husband. So God very clearly shows, uh, not just... (laughs) We, we went through the wedding vows back in Exodus 19, but then he refers to himself as the husband of Israel all through her. He doesn't do that with any other people group because he didn't wed any other Greek people group. He didn't develop this intimate relationship, this covenant-bonded relationship with anyone else. There's only one other group that has anywhere near this intimate relationship, and that's the church. Because God has covenanted with the church through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's the the promise of everlasting life, the promise of being wedded to Jesus at the um, rapture of the church. That is a covenant bond that you can parallel, if you will, with Israel, but not to be confused with Israel. And that's what we want to get into in the next portion of our question and answer period is that relationship of Israel and the church. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. 
Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.